God's word to the gospel according to Philippians. If you'll turn to Philippians chapter 2, as we consider um, just two verses this morning, uh, Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13. Uh, But in order to give us a little context, I want to look at verses uh, 12 through 18. Um, But before we begin, let's, let's ask the Lord for his help in this endeavor, all right? Father, we are thankful for your word. Um, It shines into our hearts. It gives us hope and reveals you to us. It shows us how to live and reminds us daily of your grace. So in our time this morning, we pray by your spirit that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see and feet to go and do. pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you, should, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Well, let me remind you of our context. It's been a couple weeks, or three weeks actually, since we've been in Philippians. Paul has called the Philippians to live in humility with each other which is evident in their service to each other, and they would live in unity of mind and purpose together as they strive together for the progress of the gospel, not only in their lives, but the progress of the gospel worldwide, even as they partner with him in ministry. We saw a few weeks ago that the example of this humility is none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his saving humility. So we see in that great hymn to Christ in verses 5 through 11 in in chapter 2, our Savior, the one, the only one, to whom all glory, power, dominion, and might belongs to, the only one who can say, worship me in a right way and not be guilty of pride. He is the one who laid down his life. He is the one who laid aside the glory to his name and hum- humility dying for those who wanted nothing to do with him apart from his good grace to us. And so we see this morning a very important word, the word therefore. Um, you know, the, the old line is, when you see a therefore, you always ask what the therefore is there for. And so we look at the therefore this morning as we look back to the example of humility, and it's connecting us now to um, our text, which commands us to obey. How would you respond if someone gave you a million dollars? It would probably change your life, wouldn't it? Either for good or bad. It would be a life-altering event. Or how about a million, a hundred million dollars, or perhaps what, what's this, uh, the big lotto all over the place, 300 some odd. 
What if someone gave you that money? It would change your life forever. Well, how much more? How much more? If we have received the greatest gift of all time, none other than the very salvation of our souls, the redemption of our immortal souls, the gift of eternal life, the blessing of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places which already belongs to us, that we be declared co-heirs with Christ, adopted as the sons of God, and we'll even be able to judge the angels with the Lord. What if we were given such a gift as that? How do you think it would change your life? I think if we're honest, sometimes a monetary gift of a huge amount of money might more obviously change our lives than if we receive the gift of salvation. But Paul here is saying if we have received such a great gift, if we have received the gift of salvation through the the humble service of Christ, then it should impact our lives. The response should be many-fold. Thanksgiving, gratitude, worship, awe, reverence. But in today's context, it ought to be obedience. Our lives ought to be lived in obedience. Have you ever seen one of those videos? Um, I've seen them on Facebook of, of people receiving their sight or their sense of hearing for the first time ever. And they give them the cochlear implants or whatever they do to your, to your vision to make it right. And so you, you see these, these little children who have never seen their mom or dad. And the first thing they see is, is their, their mother's tears just flowing down. Or perhaps a husband who has never heard his wife say, I love you, as they switch on the implant. And he hears the first time, his first sound, I love you. This changes everything, doesn't it? Such an an amazing gift of sight or hearing after such long periods of of blindness or deafness. And you know their lives are transformed forever. Nothing will ever be the same. And so it is true of us, we who have called on the name of Jesus, whose hearts have been made new, for whom our Savior died. For those of us who have had the the bonds of sin broken, the tyranny of the evil one destroyed in our lives, it changes who we are. And so we are God's beloved. We have received salvation. So we are called to obedience as God's beloved, working out our salvation in fear and trembling as we rely upon the work of God in our hearts, as we respond to this amazing gift that he has given to us. Verse 12 begins our appeal for obedience with some very important words. My beloved, my beloved. Paul is not writing to a random group of people saying, please obey the law. He's not writing to your local chapter of Heathens Anonymous. He is writing to believers, to to my beloved. My beloved is a key term for Paul, which means not only brother and sister in Christ or even spiritual children of of Paul the Apostle, but someone, a fellow believer, someone who has also received the, the salvation of the Lord, one who is beloved of God because he would not spare his own beloved, that he would send him to die, that we might be called his beloved. So Paul is writing to those who already have a changed heart. To, all, to those already who have been given a new heart, who have received the, the work of the Spirit in them, 
who have been baptized with the Spirit, who have been declared to be righteous in justification to those who were apparently before this entirely opposed to the kingship of God, and now they submit to him willingly because of the gift they received. This is important. Because this is important because Paul is not saying obey. He's not commanding people to obey who have no ability to obey. It is only those who have received the Spirit in their lives that are able to obey the law in any kind of real way. We learn this in Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of um, stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and calls you, calls you calls you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Because they already have a relationship with the Father, Paul is writing them and saying, now go and live a life that is glorifying to the Lord, that is in line of who you are. We see this in Exodus chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments. What does uh, Moses or what does God say to, to Moses? And to the to Israelites, does he say, go and do these Ten Commandments so that I will love you? Well, no, he doesn't say that. He reminds them of their relationship that they already have with him before he gives them the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am the Lord your God. Therefore, my beloved, Paul tells us, You know, I think sometimes we get this order mixed up, don't we? That we live under the bondage and the burden of thinking that God will only love us if we have a good day in our fight against sin. Have you ever been there before? At the end of really messing it up, I mean really messing it up. Have you wondered, does God still love me? My brothers and sisters in Christ, we are assured of his love. And it is because of his love for you that he helps you. It is because of his love for you that he forgives you. It is because of his love, because you are his beloved, that he has sent his son to die for you. And as those who have received this amazing gift, there's meant to be a change in our lives. There is a change in our lives. We have received new hearts. God has taken our old stony hearts out of us and put in new hearts of flesh. There is a change. The question is, do we live it out? Do we work it out? Do we work out this salvation that we have in every area of our lives? There's real tension though here, isn't there? Because if the, the reality is that we just don't care about obedience or holiness like we ought. Sometimes we don't care at all. That God calls us. He calls us to obedience. It's like those who have received their sight or their hearing for the first time. Do you think they go back? Do you think they turn off the cochlear implant? Do you think they put a patch back over their eye? No, their, their lives are changed forever and it's gonna impact every area of their lives. And so how to we who have received the greatest gift of all, much greater than sight, much ma- greater than hearing, we who have heard the voice of our Savior, we who have been given eyes to see, so too our, our lives are meant to be different. Paul 
tells them that just as much in his presence, much more in his absence, that they are called to be obedient. Perhaps the Philippians had grown a little too dependent upon their pastor, their founding pastor. Have you ever had a spiritual mentor in your life? At some point, the role must change. At some point, you must launch. At some point, you must take responsibility. And and so perhaps the Philippians were different around Paul than they were when he was away. Children, are you ever different when your parents aren't around? Teenagers, are you different on Friday and Saturday nights? You know, the football game, you're much more obvious than you think you are. Uh, Adults, are we different when our spouses aren't there? Or no one's looking? Or the preacher's not around? Am I the same when my pastors aren't around? When Claude and Alan and Martin and the other Alan and Christopher, these are my pastors. Am I different when they're not around? As much as you've obeyed in my presence, now obey in my absence. Because Paul wasn't sure he was coming back or not. He tells them to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. We, We might paraphrase that by saying, as one commentator said, Paul is calling them to act like Christians. He's not calling them to work for their salvation. This is not a a works righteousness um, verse. Go and do this so that God will love you or that you might stay saved. That's not what this text is saying. You have, this, you have your own salvation already. Notice that possessive word there. Work out whose salvation? Your salvation. It belongs to God and he has given it to you as a gift. Now work it out. Exercise it. Apply it. Apply your new state as God's beloved. Apply your new heart and your new condition in your lives. You better believe that my life would change if someone gave me half a billion dollars tomorrow. Has it changed when God has granted me all the heavenly riches already? Am I working it out? We're called not just to be a hearer of the law, but a doer. That's what this call is. It's a call not just to be a hearer of the law, but a doer. Imagine if the one who received his hearing, if suddenly upon hearing the new stimuli of his wife saying, I love you, if he did not respond to that, but just let it go. How to we who have spiritual ears to hear and spiritual eyes to see, how can we look upon our Savior and hear his word and his love for us and not respond It means to work out the implication of our salvation in every area of our lives. John Calvin, the Protestant reformer in the 16th century, he said, there's there's no area of our lives in which we don't have business to do with God. You know, in the world of hostile takeovers or or when one company buys another, you know, not uh, every, every department goes over. It's not like um, sending and receiving goes over to a new place, but accounting stays. It's not like um, uh, receivables over here, it goes to the new company, but, but you know, um, personnel over here, it stays. When we become believers, every bit of us becomes submissive to the lordship of Christ. So as we work out our salvation in reverence and awe and fear and trembling, we do so in every area. We don't keep little bastions for our own selves. We say, God, you can have all of this, but, but not this little spot down here. 
We work it out in every area of our lives, much like we would get a can of paint and, and apply it to the walls of our life, that every square inch of our homes would be covered. Ultimately, this call is a call to what's called sanctification. Sanctification is a fancy word. It's used in scriptures. It's a biblical word. It means that uh, it is the process by which we are made more and more like Christ. As we put to death sin in our lives and we live more and more unto righteousness, all by the, the free work of God's grace in our lives. It is hard work though, isn't it? It's hard work. Living in a holy manner is tough work. In fact, it is a, it is a tooth and nail death to the, uh, fight to the finish each and every day. We should not just think that holiness is easy. It takes real fight. The question is, do we want it? Do you want holiness? That's an honest question, isn't it? It's a hard question. In this context, especially, it means to live in humility with each other as the Philippians were to put aside their own interests. They would serve each other and stand in unity even when they disagreed. Men, are we leading our lives, our wives well? And are we serving them and leading them from the front? You know, uh, in a, a great little book on marriage, um, The Shepherd Leader at Home, the author says, uh, if you ever see a man uh, um, driving a group, a, a flock of sheep, it's not the shepherd, it's the butcher. The shepherd always leads from the front. So men, are we working out our salvation? Are we living in obedience as, obedience as we lead our, our, our families by example? Women, are you serving your husband as a helpmate in submissiveness, following his lead as he follows Christ, encouraging him and speaking highly of him to others? Children, are you obeying your parents and serving your friends and enemies alike at school? See, these are things that Christ our Savior did. He led, and he served, and he submitted himself to the lordship of his Father. But lest in our fight with sin, lest in our fight for holiness, we either um, rejoice in pride of, hey, look what I've done, or despair when we say, I have failed. Verse 13 gives us hope. Verse 13 tells us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And here we have the marriage of, of, of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. I think so often we get caught up in the academic world of this decision of, of these two um, facts in tension in Scripture. But you know what? Wherever we stand, we ought to be thankful for it. Because this text tells us that it is God who is helping you. It is God who is willing and working in you. As he calls you to work out your, fear, your salvation and fear and trembling, what does it say? It doesn't say you're the one working. It says for he is the one. He is the working one in you for his good pleasure. Indeed, we can never obey the law apart from the work of spirit in our lives. We can never obey the law in a way that would please the Lord apart from faith. And faith does not look inward, it looks outward. It looks to the Lord for strength. And so as we are called as God's beloved to, to work out our salvation, fear and trembling and obedience, we don't do it in our own strength. In fact, we'll only fall face down if we do. We do it as we rely upon the Lord this is why in Scripture and the Gospels we see so many people healed of their sight and so many people healed of their deafness 
Because who can, who can fix a deaf ear? Who can fix a blind eye? It is only our Savior. You know, um, this, the Greek word from uh, we get working uh, sounds a lot like energizing. Like the Energizer bunny has the battery that keeps going and going and going and going. That's the image here. That our holiness, our obedience is not fueled by our own strength. It is fueled, it is energized by our Savior who's working and willing in us. He's the one who changes our appetites. He's the one who helps us to obey the very commandments He gives us. Does a lump of Play-Doh say, look at what I've done when a master sculptor puts his hand to it? Do the grains of flour get puffed with pride when a grand chef makes it into the best puff pastry ever made? Look what I've done. No. Does an iron um, work without being plugged in? Does a computer work without electricity? No. It is God who empowers us, working and willing for his own good pleasure. This is great news, by the way. Because each one of us fight things in our lives that we would be um, quite disturbed to let other folks know about, don't we? If we're honest, and the gospel allows us to be honest, we all fight tooth and nail with, with sin. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know what the besetting sin, the sin that just plagues you is. But you don't fight it alone. In fact, even as God brought his people to the Red Sea, and as Moses sang this great song afterwards, and it says, it is the Lord who fights for you. And his commandment, uh, the Lord said when he was speaking of the, um, uh, the Egyptian hordes coming, he said, just stand still and watch, for the Lord fights for you this day. And so this is how we fight sin. This is how we fight in obedience. We do not go alone against the fray. We go with the Lord, the one who is working and willing in our lives. Well, in conclusion, God is not part of our story. We are part of God's story. He has a story. He has a plan, which he is willing and working. And we are racing towards the day of Christ's return. We are racing towards it. Perhaps the benediction today will end with the trumpet of the Lord calling us home. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Maybe it'll be tomorrow. Maybe it'll be in a thousand years. We don't know. But we're racing towards it. We don't know the day. But God has done the work for us. He has done the work upon the cross for us as he poured out the fury of his wrath upon uh, his son, our Savior, he is doing the work in us as he helps us to obey him. He has done the work for us in our salvation, those who know Jesus. He has forgiven us of our sins. He will do the work one day when he reworks this world. Has he worked in you? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, even as we yearn for the day of eternal rest in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the work that you have done on the cross for us. We thank you for the work of salvation, which you have worked in us, are working in us, and will work in us. And we look for the day of the reworking of this world and the vindication of your children. We pray, Lord, that day would come soon. Until then, Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, 
If there are those here who are weary and heavy laden with the, the, the burden of sin, that today they might lay it at your feet as you work and will in them for your own good pleasure. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.